Welcome to the new Fixing Healthcare podcast series, Diving Deep. I am one of your hosts, Jeremy Kaur. I'm also host of the popular New Books and Medicine podcast and CEO at Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert was the CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He is currently a Forbes contributor, a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business, and author of the best-selling books, Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong, and Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients. All profits from his books go to Doctors Without Borders. If you want more information on a broad range of healthcare topics, you can visit his website, robertperlmd.com. In this episode of Diving Deep, I plan to focus on the risks people face both from COVID and from three mega forces likely to create a perfect storm. You may be surprised which to learn is more ominous. Robbie, you recently wrote an experience you had when you went for your routine ophthalmology visit. Can you tell your listeners what happened? Sure, Jeremy. Every two years, I see my ophthalmologist, have my vision checked, make sure there aren't any medical issues that need attention. Much has happened over the past two and a half years since my last appointment. You know, in general, when physicians see each other after a prolonged hiatus, they spend the first five minutes or so just catching up. Often COVID-19 dominates the conversation. Knowing that we broadcast coronavirus the truth, he asked me my thoughts on getting a second booster shot. Although he had read the CDC's original guidance in March, then the updated guidance in May, and finally the newest guidance from June, he remained uncertain about what to do. Rabbi, how did you respond? Jeremy, the first thing I realized is that he wasn't asking me about the CDC guidelines. Instead, his questioning was more specific to himself. What he really wanted to understand was whether he was safe to wait for the fall when a next generation booster is likely to become available, or whether he currently was in significant danger and therefore should get his fourth shot as soon as possible. And as you know, personal risk is probably the top of the mind question the listeners of Coronavirus The Truth have. Most Americans are struggling to figure out how they should strike a safe balance between protecting themselves and their loved ones and trying to enjoy and get on with their lives. Robbie, before telling folks exactly what you said to him, I thought it would be valuable for context for us to use this opportunity to review the five most common COVID questions we receive from listeners. Jeremy, probably the most frequent one we receive now is, what are my chances of dying from COVID-19? The newest strains of covid particularly BA.5 and BA.4 have generated massive confusion. Across the US, these Omicron variants have spread like wildfire. Like many Americans, I have dozens of friends who've been infected recently, but I don't know anyone who's been very sick or needed hospitalization. But of course, what I've just told you is purely anecdotal. So let's take a data-driven scientific approach and try to help listeners quantify the danger. And here's where the unique characteristics of this Omicron variant make calculating the risk confusing. One way to look at the question is, for people who become sick, how likely are they to die? 
And here's the best quantitative estimate I can find. There are about 100,000 new cases documented through laboratory testing each day. And according to the Institute for Health Metrics, the actual number of new cases is approximately seven times greater. And that's because people who are infected don't always get tested. Many of them are asymptomatic. And the ones who do get tested often use a home rapid test and never report the results to any monitoring agency. So in general numbers, that's about 700,000 new cases a day. Now let's look at the death rates. Even with the recent surge, daily deaths remain in the 400 range or around 0.06%, translating that into people, that's one death per 1,700 infected individuals. That's less than for the flu, where the best estimates are the mortality is 0.1% or one death per 1,000 people infected. And the risk to the average American is actually far less since among the 400 people who die each day, the overwhelming majority are unvaccinated individuals, patients with compromised immunity, individuals suffering from multiple chronic diseases, or people taking medications designed to lower the body's immunological defense, such as after transplantation or in treating diseases like rheumatoid arthritis. That analysis of the risk is clear. What's another way to look at the question of how likely someone is to die from Obicron? Jeremy, the other approach focuses on the total number of people who will die from COVID over a 12-month period. This is the total population, not just the subsegment that become infected. And when we look at the whole population, due to the ease of transmissibility particularly the BA.5 variant, the risk is now much higher than from the flu. In most years, the deaths from influenza in the United States range from about 20,000 to 60,000. In contrast, at 300 deaths from Omicron per day, as was the case about a month ago, the total annual mortality would be slightly higher than 100,000 people, or two to five times as great as the flu. And at the 400 deaths per day, which is where we stand now, the number of people dying from COVID in a year would be 150,000, or approximately three to seven times higher. Phrased differently, if two viruses have the exact same lethality, but one is twice as transmissible as the other, double the number of people will die from that virus than the other one. So let's put these two parts together. Most adults who have been vaccinated and boosted and don't have any factors negatively impacting their immunity or raising their risk of exposure, they're reasonably well protected. And overall, we can say their risk of dying from Omicron is similar to the flu and relatively low. Robbie, a second common question we receive is related. Listeners want to understand why are cases going way up but deaths aren't? Can you provide some of the biology? Jeremy, as you point out, despite the ongoing COVID-19 
surge this summer, the daily death count has risen only slightly and it remains minimally above the previous pandemic lows. Scientists can't be sure exactly why this is the case, but their research provides important biological insights. The first observation is specific to the mutations in the coronavirus spikes. The most recent change in the proteins allow the BA.5 virus both to overcome the immunity generated by past infection or by past vaccination and to more tightly cling to the lining of the nose compared with past variants. Putting these two characteristics together, they make BA.5 highly transmissible. At the same time, at least based on laboratory research, comparing BA.5 to previous strains, Omicron doesn't appear to multiply in lung tissue as easily or rapidly as prior variants. As such, if a person becomes infected, he or she has a reduced risk of developing pneumonia, which as you know, is the leading cause of death from COVID. Phrased differently, it's likely that the evolution in the spike proteins made this virus capable of eluding our body's defenses at the point of entry, but it also made it produce life-threatening problems less often. From a survival of the fitness standpoint, and this is the survival of the fittest virus, that evolution makes sense. The easier a virus is to be transferred from one person to the next, the more likely a strain is to become dominant, while higher lethality has no evolutionary value for the virus. The virus kills the host, that person can't pass on the virus to other individuals. And in parallel to these mutations in the virus, there are changes in humans. People's immunity is dropping. We know that circulating antibodies, which are the ones that help protect us from becoming infected in the first place, drop month by month without boosters and seem to reach low levels in four to six months. Moreover, Americans aren't getting vaccinated and boosted at anywhere near the rate that's recommended. This lack of protection is also raising the number of new cases. But at least so far, most people are not getting extremely sick since their bodies have other powerful defenses like cellular immunity that protect them against severe disease and death. Combining all these parts, you see a high chance of developing disease, but a low risk of dying following infection. That all makes sense, but what about long COVID among people who become infected, even those with mild cases? That's a common question that listeners ask as well. I concur that for many people, long COVID feels nearly as great a threat as dying. And the reason is how frequently it occurs. Researchers estimate that 10 to 30% of all COVID infections result in long COVID, and it can be severe. Symptoms range 
from the terrifying cognitive decline, hallucinations, and chronic shortness of breath to the unusual, which includes prolonged loss of taste or smell. One report listed 203 possible symptoms of long COVID, and these were found in 10 different organs of the human body. Scientists can't explain why some people experience mental fog or persistent fatigue a month or more, even after a mild case, whereas others return to their full health quickly. And here the data on the possible impact of vaccination at preventing long COVID, initially at least, seems contradictory. On one hand, a study of 13 million veterans found that only 15% reduction in cases of long COVID occurred between those individuals who were vaccinated and those individuals who were not. That would imply that vaccination doesn't do much, only 15% to prevent this problem. But missing from that conclusion is other data that show that vaccinated individuals are three times less likely to become infected in the first place. And vaccinated plus boosted Americans were five times less likely to develop COVID than individuals who were not vaccinated and boosted. When you combine the two studies, the conclusion is that vaccination actually has a major impact at protecting against long COVID. In total, vaccination plus boosting diminishes the chances of a person developing long COVID by 70 or 80% when you add together the large number of people who won't contract COVID in the first place with the added protection vaccination offers against developing symptoms in those who are infected. And for listeners with lingering symptoms after recovery, there's even some good news. Recent research by the CDC using self-reported data show that 13% of individuals experience COVID symptoms one month after infection, but only 2.5% of infected people experience the same symptoms after three months. As such, we can conclude that most individuals get better. Unfortunately, scientists are still debating what produces long COVID. We just don't know. We don't know if it's persistent infection on one hand, or maybe it's just a sign of continued immune response to residual viral particles throughout our bodies. On the other, once we can understand this strange and unusual disease, hopefully we can come up with better treatments than we have today. Robbie, like your ophthalmologist, lots of listeners are confused about the best timing for a second booster shot. They know that most likely both Pfizer and Moderna will be making Omicron-specific vaccines available in the fall. What do you advise? Jeremy, when my physician asked me what I recommended, I explained that would depend on two factors. The first is overall risk, which is a reflection of the underlying disease or the specific medications the person takes. And the second is how likely are they to be exposed and subsequently infected. In my situation, I told them that I took my second booster 
because I was planning to travel to Italy in June to attend a friend's wedding. And I knew I'd be exposed to the virus, both in my travels and at the indoor event itself. However, since I am very healthy without any chronic diseases, if I didn't have this trip scheduled, I would have waited for the next generation vaccine. My biggest piece of advice, whether it's the national policy experts, listeners of our shows, or this particular doctor, is that one size doesn't fit all when it comes to COVID. And as we've talked in this show many times, that's the problem with most of the recommendations coming out of the CDC and various policy experts. You know, Jeremy, early in the pandemic, we failed to recognize the massive risk for people in chronic nursing facilities. And we underprotected them for infection and a excessive number died. In the middle, we overestimated the risk to kids and we unnecessarily inflicted educational, social, and psychological harm. And now we aren't adequately factoring in what could be even a hundredfold difference in the risk of dying from Omicron based on health status and immunological competence. People who are vaccinated and boosted, as well as those at low risk and limited exposure, they should feel relatively safe waiting for the next generation vaccine, which we can predict will be more effective against Omicron and subsequent variants. While people with high risk or continued exposure, they benefit greatly from a second booster and waiting for the fall seems riskier than taking the shot now. Even for those who become boosted now, high-risk individuals will still benefit from an additional Omicron-specific vaccine this fall. That will better protect them against the variants of the time, as well as against whatever mutations should come in the near future. But given how rare a major vaccine problem is, people who are afraid still could go ahead and take the second shot when it becomes available. Robbie, the final area of frequency concern relates to the uncertainty about how safe it is to resume your previous social life. What are your thoughts? Jeremy, as we explained in the last episode of Coronavirus, the truth, people are willing to accept more risk now, largely because they're sick of living under constant restrictions. And as we discussed, more and more individuals are choosing to remove their masks and even act in ways that a year ago they would have deemed immoral and inappropriate. As such, remaining cautious when it comes to social events makes sense for some of us. Probably the best way for people to decide what to do is for them to calculate which of three categories they find themselves in. They could be high risk. That happens if they have a compromised immune system, multiple chronic diseases, or advanced age. For them, COVID remains a great threat. To avoid hospitalization and possible death, they should get a booster as soon as they qualify based on the CDC guidelines. And to minimize risk, they'd be wise to wear a mask 
and avoid crowded spaces. Then there's the group in low risk. They're the young and healthy at the opposite end of the risk spectrum from the high risk group. And they're relatively safe. Although they have a high probability to become infected, they have minimal chance of developing severe disease that will require hospitalization or take their life. And then of course, there's the large group in between. And in this group, what I suggest is that they examine their own, their personal risk tolerance. If they're psychologically and personality-based, have a low risk tolerance, they need to recognize that. And in response, they should wear a mask, avoid crowds, and get boosted the first day they're eligible. On the other hand, there are many people in this middle, middle group who are not risk averse. They're willing to accept risks in their life when the cost benefit analysis looks positive. And if they're comfortable with that risk, what they might want to do is just test themselves to the first side of infection and take Paxlovid if they qualify based on the CDC guidelines, should they test positive? But at the same time, they need to remember that statistically they are likely to die. So in this group, they should enjoy their life to the fullest and probably stop second guessing their choices. Barry, let's move on to other threats people face relative to their health. You published an article in Forbes yesterday titled, These Three Healthcare Threats Will Do More Damage Than COVID-19. Can you discuss what you see is so ominous and why? Happy to, Jeremy. You know, for the two years that have just passed, COVID rattled financial markets. It dominated news coverages and it disrupted daily life in ways that most Americans would never have predicted. But now that we're in year three, what we see is that the coronavirus has been downgraded for the majority of Americans to a persistent yet manageable threat. And as we just said, it's on par with the flu. Thanks to some familiar medical solutions, these are vaccinations, antiviral meds, public safety measures. Three quarters of Americans say the worst of COVID is behind us. And I concur with this group. But in contrast to the receding risk from COVID, the threat of a new disaster, it looms on the horizon. And there are three mega forces that are poised to slam American healthcare. And together they represent a perfect storm. It reminds me of the confluence of factors that threaten New Orleans in 2004. At the time, most people failed to appreciate how great the looming threat was. In contrast, a team of hurricane experts at Louisiana State University accurately predicted, and I quote them, a catastrophe is right on the horizon. And less than a year later, New Orleans was 11 feet underwater. And by the time the waters had receded, Hurricane Katrina had killed 1,833 people and left thousands more homeless. How did the researchers at LSU know Katrina 
would inflict so much damage. They used database computer simulations and what they observed was a confluence of potentially deadly forces. Rising heat, weak levees, high wind speeds, transportation issues, and more. And what they realized is that when these forces combined, they would be so strong that they would inflict certain destruction. You know, our minds have difficulty understanding the differences between forces being additive and forces multiplying each other. And when they hit it once, they magnify each other. And the consequences are destruction and devastation beyond what we initially think. And I see a similar situation unfolding in American healthcare. Robbie, can you explain more about the healthcare threat? Sure, Jeremy. You know, as we discussed extensively in season one of our Fixing Healthcare podcast, decades of price escalation combined with eroding quality and misused technologies have made US healthcare the most expensive and least effective system in the developed world. By themselves, these protracted healthcare issues might be able to be dealt with over time using familiar fixes. You know, we could have evolved our payment system as we've talked about for a while from a fee-for-service methodology that rewards volume to some type of prepayment, what we'd call a capitated model that rewards value. And with more time and now a different method of reimbursement, what we likely would have seen is doctors joining together to form integrated multi-specialty medical groups, wanting to better coordinate care as a means to benefit financially from the investments they would be making in modern technology and in being able to preserve their own personal income. And seeing the opportunities that these changes generated, we would then see organizations invest in and develop the skills that clinicians need to become effective leaders. But accomplishing all that, that probably would take 10 years. And that's way too long to wait given the trio of mega forces that healthcare now faces. In New Orleans, if the only problem were the levees, Louisiana might've had time to shore them up. Or if there was a way to evacuate people from the city quickly, once the magnitude of the winds that Katrina Pack was recognized, at least the nearly 2000 lives wouldn't have been lost. But the combination of all the forces is what made that hurricane so devastating. In healthcare today, any of the three current healthcare mega forces alone, they could be addressed individually using the traditional solutions of the past. But the combination hitting simultaneously, that requires new solutions. And if we don't act soon, these three mega forces will pound our nation year after year with ever worse consequences over time. And that's why I believe that these three mega forces 
will prove to be more horrific and ultimately cost more lives than COVID did unless we quickly embrace a radical solution. Remy, that sounds terrible. Can you talk about the first megaforce? Jeremy, in my 2021 book, Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients, I predicted that the federal COVID relief efforts, ones that totaled in the trillions of dollars, would cause inflation to rise rapidly. And that has come to pass. But what I failed to anticipate when I wrote the book was that a series of global events, the war in Ukraine, an international oil shortage, and a persistent supply chain squeeze would also enter the picture. And the combination would drive US inflation to a 40 year high. It's the steep upward slope in prices that has created the urgency today. So far, most patients and even public health officials don't realize that healthcare costs are about to explode. That are lulled by the relatively tame rate of healthcare inflation that we see today, particularly when we compare that to the rise in consumer prices. And of course, they assume that the relative calm will continue, but they miss something in their analysis. And that's that healthcare pricing doesn't adjust in real time, as happens with gasoline, groceries, or housing. Instead, the cost of everything from nursing salaries to bandages to medications, they're set one to two years in advance and they hold firm for 12 to 24 months. But when these contracts and agreements come up for renewal, and they will starting this fall, the piper will have to be paid. Labor and healthcare is essential and it's increasingly expensive. So are raw materials and supply chain expenses. You know, these are the same factors, Jeremy, that have driven consumer prices up 9%, and they're likely to drive up the price of healthcare to unaffordable levels for decades to come if something isn't done about it. Already starting next year, the majority of US health insurers plans to increase employer rates 10 to 15%, and American families they're likely to be forced to shoulder an even greater percentage increase in what they pay out of pocket today. Unaffordable healthcare bills already are the leading cause of bankruptcy in the United States, and they're likely to affect more and more families in the years to come. I understand the pernicious impact inflation has. What's another megaforce? Jeremy, a second mega force is the growing nursing shortage. It's reaching a breaking point. As an example, two weeks ago, a friend, he's a surgeon. He called me at four o'clock in the afternoon to cancel our dinner plans for that evening. He told me that one of his patients who was scheduled for surgery that morning was still waiting for his procedure. And of course, the patient was preoperative, so he hadn't been allowed to eat or drink anything since the night before. My friend was apologetic, but there was nothing he could do. He didn't think it was fair to the patient to cancel the procedure and then have to reschedule it for a later time. The reason for the de delay was that the hospital, this is a highly respected academic facility, couldn't staff all the available rooms in the building due to the shortage of nurses. And across the US, surgical delays and cancellations are becoming increasingly common for the same reason. How severe is this nursing shortage, Robbie? 
Jeremy, the answer is incredibly problematic and growing rapidly. According to multiple studies, one third of nurses plan to leave their current roles and many intend to exit the workforce entirely. More than one in four baby boomering nurses plan to retire within the next year. The dwindling headcount poses a huge problem for patients. Hospitals literally can't function without enough nurses. State regulators set minimum requirements for nurse staffing on medical floors and critical care units and in the operating room. When hospitals can't meet these numbers, medical care gets delayed and patients must be turned away. Nursing shortage is especially pronounced in operating rooms where experienced nursing is essential for optimal patient care. Now you might assume an easy solution would be just expand nursing school enrollment and increase class sizes. Training nurses, that's very expensive and time consuming. It takes at least five years to get a new nurse ready to deliver bedside care and even longer to give them the skills for an operating room. And further complicating the issue is the fact that it takes a skilled nurse to teach nursing students the hands-on skills of bedside patient care. And the context of nursing shortages, hospital administrators are loath to assign experienced nurses to an educational role rather than a care delivery role, even though that may be the best long-term choice. Ravi, how does the first megaforce, inflation, and this one, nursing shortage, interact with each other? Jeremy, with the dual threats of inflation and the intensifying shortage of nurses, hospital administrators feel trapped in an endless cycle of lose-lose situations. They know that aggressively raising wages to recruit and retain nurses will drive costs through the roof, but they also know that holding salaries down to address even higher costs will lead to nurses quitting. As a result, surgical backlogs are growing and even the fully insured are finding the surgeries delayed and having to be canceled. The result over time, if this process continues and if availability diminishes, will be poor outcomes, avoidable complications, and even deaths. What happened to your friend's patient? When my friend called the next day, he said that his patient from the prior day had finally undergone surgery at 2 a.m. He added, fortunately, the case went well. When I asked him how the family reacted, he replied, they're still irate. Robbie, what's the third megaforce hitting healthcare today? Jeremy, the third megaforce is the burnout crisis. Even before the pandemic, doctors were reporting burnout rates of 44% or more. Now, after two years of intensifying workplace demands and an endless parade of patient deaths, the emotional trauma on healthcare professionals has reached a boiling point. The shortage of nurses and support staff combined with cost-cutting efforts from insurers and hospital administrators have only fueled the discontent. Doctors increasingly reject the word burnout. 
They prefer the label moral injury, a term derived from the military experience of soldiers who were psychologically damaged when they were forced to inflict harm on innocent civilians. In healthcare, the pain of moral injury comes from being unable to provide excellent medical care due to factors outside of doctors' controls. A growing number of physicians say hospital administrators and insurance company executives are more concerned with profits than providing outstanding patient care. And doctors don't feel like they're getting the respect and appreciation they deserve for all of their hard work. Robbie, I can see the pain a clinician would feel, but why is this now a megaforce with a major challenge to healthcare? The answer, Jeremy, is how doctors are responding. As dissatisfaction grows, physicians increasingly are turning to private equity firms for better compensation and greater control of their day-to-day -day professional lives. Private equity leaders recognize the financial opportunity and they're racing to embrace it. Their approach is to first sign up as many community specialists as possible with a particular eye on the kinds of doctors that hospitals need to stay in business. These are anesthesiologists, ER doctors, orthopedists, urologists, and cardiologists. Then having gained market control through consolidation, they demand significantly higher physician reimbursement from insurers and from hospitals, usually in the 25% or more range. Between 2010 and 2019, private equities, annual healthcare investments soared from 42 billion to 120 billion. And naturally the last thing these private equity companies want is to reduce reimbursement or to try to solve the problems that hospitals have on the backs of doctors. And as burnout continues to intensify, more and more physicians will pursue this private equity route, worsening healthcare's cost crisis and blocking the transition from volume to value that we mentioned earlier in the podcast. How do you see this scenario playing out for the United States? Jeremy, as happened with Katrina, this vicious combination of forces hitting all at once will inflict massive damage without a clear way to address them. Double-digit inflation, a major nursing shortage, and monopolistic control of physician specialists through private equity all on top of the healthcare problems that predated COVID will produce a mega disaster unless we take urgent and bold action. The old solutions to inflation, including eliminating overtime and assigning doctors and nurses ever larger patient loads, it simply won't work. And addressing the shortage of personnel by raising nursing salaries and acquiescing to private equity demands, that will only exacerbate healthcare inflation trying to squeeze compensation and reduce headcount, that will worsen nurse and doctor satisfaction and compromise healthcare access. No, these old ways of addressing healthcare's short-term problems will only prove a failure and continue to make the current problems worse. They'll create what we call in the business world, a vicious cycle. As you know, as a businessman, this type of combination of threats, rapid price increase and a shortage of people to do the work, it's happening in quite a number of industries today. But in most circumstances, what we see is a built-in recalibration. In the housing market, as prices rise and the cost of borrowing climbs, 
What we've seen is demand dropping and prices falling. As the cost of steak goes up, people turn to chicken and they eat out less, diminishing demand. But healthcare is different. When it comes to expensive, life-threatening procedures, people have to go forward, no matter the cost. As a result, no matter the price, demand rarely declines. And with a limited number of nurses and private equity driving physician demands, there's no end to cost inflation in healthcare in sight. Robbie, what do you advise? Jeremy, addressing all three mega forces together, I believe will require a radically different approach than in the past. Applying the traditional ways that hospitals have raised in cost and attracted more staff, they just won't work now. I'll be laying out a combination of approaches in my next Forbes article that's scheduled to be published in the next month. Any listeners who want to read more about these ideas, as soon as they're available, they should go to the website robertpearlmd.com and sign up for my newsletter, The Monthly Musings on Healthcare. But for those listeners who prefer to wait, we should plan to discuss this on the next episode of Diving Deep. The one insight though I'll offer today is that to address what seems like an unsolvable problem, the first step is to reframe it by asking different questions about the challenges that exist than we did in the past. And when we do that, invariably we generate unexpected and unique ideas. And that's what I'll be providing in the Forbes article and in our next Diving Deep episode. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and we'll tell your friends and colleagues about it. Fixing Healthcare is now a weekly podcast posted each Tuesday. Please follow Fixing Healthcare on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast platform. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. Visit our website at fixinghealthcarepodcast.com and follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Fixing HC Podcast. Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare's newest series, Diving Deep with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Have a great day.